Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening our eyes to a new view of life. Thanks for joining us today. You know, almost 80 weeks ago, we started this podcast with the hope that we could help others see themselves in a new light. And it's been awesome to receive your feedback that these podcasts are helping you see and feel and gain energy from the messages that we share. And because you give of your time each week to listen, we want you to know we feel a responsibility to share messages that are of worth to you. And if there were any message we would want you to hear today, it's that you're filled with immense potential, that there's great value in you, in your future, and in your efforts to improve. So, I hope today you hear something that can help you get a better view of your place in the world and how you can live to your potential. And when you're done listening today, if you find some good ideas here, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you automatically get the next podcast as it's released each week. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about this question. What is your future worth? The Teton Mountain Range is part of the Rocky Mountains, and it extends north and south along the Wyoming and Idaho state line, south of Yellowstone National Park. Three Teton peaks stand apart, towering over Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And these three peaks are the Grand, the Middle, and the South Tetons. All three peaks are sought-after destinations for mountain climbers from around the world, with the Grand being the most challenging. Now, I lived near the Tetons for many years, and many aspiring climbers would head out in the early summer after the snow clears and attempt the summit of the Grand Teton. The peak stands at 13,776 feet, making it the second tallest mountain in Wyoming. Several years ago, on July 26th, 13 climbers set out to climb the Grand. They'd been planning the trip for over a year, and the trip had been delayed by snow. They were really excited to finally have their adventure come to fruition. The group consisted of Rob and his wife, Sharika, Rob's brother, Justin, Rob's father, Sharika's father, Clinton and his wife, Erica, and several others. In total, six of those climbing that day worked for our company, Melaleuca, most of them in the IT department. As the climbers arrived for the last 1,000 feet of their climb, they had to rope up and climb a number of rather steep pitches and extreme obstacles. These pitches are named Wall Street, the Golden Staircase, Wind Tunnel, and Friction Pitch. Now, unless you're an experienced climber, these obstacles are really scary. They're straight up and down, and they require you climb like a ladder with hands and legs. And when you look down, you realize that if you fall, you'll likely not live. Therefore, most climbers are on belay and attached via ropes to each other and the anchors placed in the rock. Well, as the team approached the final 800 feet, the climbers were spread out across these very difficult pitches with four or five climbers roped together. About 3 p.m., it started to rain, and the rock faces were getting slick, and it was obvious a serious storm was coming. So Rob and his dad knew that standing on top of a rock in the middle of a lightning storm was a death wish, and they had to get off the mountain and do so fast. They were disappointed at having to turn around, but Rob got on the radio and told everyone to turn back. Rob himself had just scaled the 100-foot sheer wall called Friction Pitch, and he yelled to his wife, Did you hear that? 
And he had no sooner gotten those words out of his mouth than a jolt of electricity ripped through his body. It squeezed every muscle inside of him, and the force spun him around, and he started sliding down the rock face on his back. The suddenness and power of the lightning was beyond frightening. Well, when the lightning bolt hit the Grand Teton that day, another climber, Rod Liberal, was ascending friction pitch, and he was struggling to find his footing on the slick wall and was roped in for safety. When the bolt hit, it blew him off the wall, swung him around, and left him dangling by the rope thousands of feet in the air. He was immediately knocked unconscious, and he was hanging in a ghastly fashion, with his body facing up, the rope around his waist, and he was hanging in a V-shape with his head backwards almost touching his feet. The lightning strike also hit three climbers below the pitch with tremendous force. And one of the three, Reagan, felt his body immediately stiffen as if he were being electrocuted. He fell. He was sure he was going to die, but then he landed with a thud on his back with his legs twisted. Ropes attached to his harness had wrapped around a boulder and were also attached to Jacob and Justin both of whom had fallen about 100 feet and were unresponsive. Higher up the mountain, Rob's wife, Sharika, stopped her husband's slide down the rock. She pushed him up against the rock wall, and then they heard a scream. Rob knew the voice. It was his friend Clinton. And Clinton, who had blacked out after the lightning strike, had opened his eyes and was unable to move his legs. They were charred and burned. His wife, Erica, was leaning on him, unresponsive. And when he rolled her over, there was no sign of life. Rob crept over an outcropping and got to Clinton as fast as he could. Rob looked at Erica. Her helmet was melted and scorched. Her lips were swollen black and blue. Her clothes looked like they had exploded from the inside out and were melted in many places. And she had no pulse. Rob didn't know what to do. So Rob and Clinton and Sherika started CPR, but there was no response. Erica really didn't want to go on the climb, but Rob had talked her into coming, and Rob didn't know it then, but the colossal bolt of lightning hit Erica directly, causing immediate cardiac arrest. Then the lightning had fingered out across the rock face, seeking other climbers on the mountain. Well, at the ranger station in the town of Moose, it was raining. At 3.45 p.m., the dispatch center received a 911 cell phone call from a frantic climber. The call was forwarded to the ranger station, and the full message said, 431 Teton Dispatch, respond to a report of a lightning strike on the Grand Teton. Five people down, the party appears to be on friction pitch on the Grand. One person not breathing, one person hanging upside down and not breathing, three people missing and not responding to verbal. The first thing the lead ranger do was run outside and look up. The weather was deteriorating quickly and rain was pelting down, and there was a mass of wind and clouds obscuring the view of the Grand Teton. The rescue would be difficult at best. As the call came in, most rescuers in the park that day were at Lupine Meadows at 6,700 feet, and the first task was to get them to the lower saddle of the Grand at 11,600 feet. And from there, they could climb to the stranded climbers at 13,000. Now, the easiest way to get the rescuers there was to fly them in. But the storm could prevent the helicopters from getting up the mountain. Well, back on the mountain, Rod, who was hanging upside down from the rope, opened his eyes. Rob told Rod to drop his pack, which he did. 
He was seriously injured. And Rob yelled, stay alive. Remember your boy. Hold on. Help is on the way. Rob then looked down, hoping to see his brother, Justin. He saw no one and heard no one, but he kept shouting. And finally, a few minutes later, Reagan yelled back through the rain, something about a broken rope. Soon, the rangers were assembled and the helicopter was in the air. And at 4.30 p.m., the helicopter approached and the pilot was taken back when he saw the scene. They saw a lifeless body on the rock, another hanging by a rope not moving, and several others perched perilously on the steep pitches of the mountain face. As the rangers assessed the situation from the air, they saw the almost impossible task before them. The climbers were strung out up and down the steep face of the mountain peak, and the rain was already likely causing hypothermia, and the injuries of the climbers were unknown. At 6.09 p.m., two hours and 23 minutes after the 911 call, the first rescuer reached the climbers. A climber hoisted down from the second helicopter knew that darkness was coming fast. So first he confirmed that Erica had indeed passed away. Next, he could see Clinton's condition and helped move him away from his wife's body. Then he asked about Rod, who was still dangling on the rope. Is he alive, he asked. So they yelled to Rod and he groaned. It was a miracle he was alive, hanging for so long in the air. And over the next two hours, rescuers rappelled down to Rod, extracted him from the rope, and evacuated him to the helicopter. The next to be hoisted up was Clinton. He didn't want to leave his wife, but the rescuers assured him she would not be left alone. The rescuers had found the three missing climbers. They had bloody legs and injuries. They'd fallen about 100 feet down the mountainside. They were all roped together. And given the time of night and the desperate condition of the three climbers, the rescuers put the men in litters and skillfully climbed down the mountain with the litters in tow. One miracle after another helped get the climbers off the mountain. Rod spent two months in the hospital and struggled to recover from his injuries. Eventually, he moved from the area. But in 2005, he returned and summited the mountain as part of a memorial climb. It's the only climbing Rod has done since. Clinton's recovery took about six months. He endured painful skin grafts on his leg and other medical treatments. He had to tell his two kids that their mother was not coming home. And several months after the accident, Rob carried a Karen to friction pitch on the mountain and left it in memorial. And he carried down a 15-pound piece of granite. On that granite, Clinton had it engraved with the words, Touched by God. And the following summer, Clinton and Rob took the stone up to friction pitch with the rest of the team where it sits today. In the end, Clinton is grateful for a few things, for the years he had with his wife, for his kids, and for the fact that a split second before the lightning struck, he had reclipped the belay device into an anchor in the rock, and that belay kept the three climbers below him from falling off the mountain. Years later, when Clinton's kids were older, he and Rob and their children climbed the Grand Teton together. And Clinton's two kids, who barely knew their mother, sat where she sat, and then atop the mountain that was touched by God. Now, I find it remarkable that both Rod and Clint returned to climb the Grand. How do you do that? How do you muster the courage to climb again, knowing what you lost on the mountain and risking another accident? Well, I think you and me, and all of us at times, while not as difficult as what Clint and Rod and Rob went through, 
get to decide whether we will rise and climb and finish the task at hand. And I suspect that you at times have fallen or attempted a figurative climb or two in your life. And maybe partway up that climb, you were forced to turn around, you needed help, or may have never reached your goal. And so I ask the same question of you. Why climb again? Why try again? Well, I've come to learn this very important lesson about climbs and about attempts in life. It's not about the mountain. It's not about the lightning. It's not about the decisions or miscalculations or choices or circumstances. And it's not about who to blame. It's not, despite what Miley Cyrus sings, about the climb. It is about the climber. You know, I talked to Rob a few days ago. And the reason Clint and Rod and Rob went back and climbed the Grand again is because they cared about the climber. They wanted to honor Erica. They wanted to return to the place where she was touched by God and celebrate her life. And in a way, I think they all needed to climb again. Given all they lost and given what they endured afterwards, was it worth it to climb again? Well, I can imagine Clinton and his children sitting atop the Grand and staring out over the adjacent valleys at 13,800 feet and the perspective they gained that day. As a result of the climb, they could see, appreciate, and value things they may have never valued without the climb. And I ask you the same question. Is what you're trying, risking, or doing worth it? Because you are giving your life to a thing, your time, your mind, your effort. And if it is worth it, then you have to ask the next question. What is it worth? And while you're measuring worth, what is your future worth? Is it worth the sacrifice, the climb you're undertaking today? Is the person you're hoping to become worth the effort you are making today? You see, we are creating, defining, molding, shaping, and building our future each day by what we do and how we act. We are making a climb, whether we know it or not. So we have to decide and define and declare what our future will be by our climb today. You know, I often see a few of us setting less goals than we used to. It's as if we've decided that goals or thoughts about our future are not worthwhile. But here's the truth. The value of a future goal is the present change that it makes in you today. So what's your future worth? Is it worth a climb? I believe your future, the future you, is of immense value. And it is worth your goal and climb and effort today. So if all of that is true, then how do we improve our perspective to make our future more a part of our present today? Well, the first principle is to clearly see, to imagine our future. And this is so simple, but so seldom done. To clearly imagine the person we want to become, one of the exercises that I ask of my business school students is to articulate the future person that they will be. That means they have to spend time thinking and writing about their future selves. And I've found the more they write, the more they think, the more they change, and the more they change their perspective of who they are today. You know, Michael was born in 1986 in the middle of the crack cocaine epidemic that was present in many inner cities in North America. He was one of 12 children who were born to a mother who was addicted to crack. And by the time Michael was a young boy, 
his father had long since disappeared. When his mother was sober, she would remember to buy groceries, but that wasn't very often. And without supervision, Michael rarely made it to school. He repeated both the first and second grade, and he attended nine schools in 11 years. By the time he was 15, he had grown to six feet, five inches tall. Now, he was a quiet young man who rarely caused trouble, but because of his size, he loved to play basketball, and the local coach took him in and helped him get into a private school. Well, it's at that point that a rather famous movie picks up the story of Michael Orr. The Blind Side tells how the Tui family and a wonderful tutor, Miss Sue, helped change the course of Michael's life. Michael would go on to play football in college and spend 10 years in the NFL, and the Blind Side movie would go on to earn millions of dollars at the box office. But Michael Orr says that what the movie doesn't tell you is that as a young boy struggling in his desperate conditions, he always had a dream. And it was that dream, the hope for the future, that enabled him to rise and endure. He said that when you live in poverty and squalor, you picture your future and put on that image. So you see yourself as the person you will become, not the person you are today. Because the person you are today is too poor and too pitiful to identify with. It's imagining that future that is yet to come that gives you hope. So, as you decide what your future is worth, you may have to visit the future and look at who you will become. Then ask yourself, is it worth what you have to do today to become that person tomorrow? There is power in taking a mental picture of the future you, and it will change your view of who you are today. Next, it's important to remember so much of who we are depends on perspective. As one author said, your perspective will either become your prison or your passport. For years, I've heard managers and people say that you don't need a college degree or a master's degree, that you can gain the same knowledge through reading and living life. And I suppose that could be true, but it is often not true. Here's what college or an advanced degree gives you. Perspective. How? Well, because for a short while in life, you're forced to explore and learn a variety of perspectives. And you put on those perspectives and have to sort through whether they're yours or not. And you get to learn what others see and have done and explore the consequences of their efforts. In short, a degree helps you try on and define what your future will be. Then your future starts to influence the person you are in the present, and you become a different person. As C.S. Lewis said, what you see and hear depends a great deal on where you're standing. When you stand in places of learning, you see and hear things you might not otherwise see or hear. And the same goes for places of sacrifice, prayer, noble works, goals, struggle, and hard work. You see and hear things you might not otherwise see or hear because you are standing in those places. You see, the climb gives you perspective. So, where do you stand today in your life? Is most of your time spent standing in places of relaxation? If so, your perspective may be limited. If you serve and stand in places where noble work takes place, you're likely getting a view of life 
and yourself otherwise not possible. Now, in my faith, when you're a young man or woman, you can volunteer to serve in various places in the world. And you go through an interview and then submit an application of sorts. And the church then extends an assignment. And you don't have a say in where you go, but you get a letter designating the place of service. Then you go to that area of the world and stay and live and serve there for the designated time. When my oldest daughter was halfway through college, she considered serving a mission. She'd always been a good person and tried in her life to do what was right and good, but like me and you and most of us, she had her immature perspectives. She was lost a bit in who she was and what she was meant to do in life. So she started to pray and think about serving a mission. And she prayed and considered and prayed and considered some more. But she couldn't get clarity of mind about whether she should stay in school or, at the age of 22, put her life on hold for 18 months and serve other people. Well, she called me one evening asking what she should do. And I asked her a question. Why do you want to serve? And she answered that she loved God and wanted to serve Him. And there was something she felt, perhaps inspiration, that there was a purpose in serving. But she didn't know exactly whether that was inspiration or not. Well, my advice to her was, get started. Begin the process of interviewing and submitting her application. My experience had been that when you move deliberately in the direction you feel inspired to act, the confirmation of your decision will come, or you'll be inspired to know that you're on the wrong path. But sometimes you have to be on the path and walk forward a bit before you get that perspective and understanding. So she started the process. She kept praying, but had little spiritual confirmation that her actions were right or wrong. She had her final meeting with the pastor of her congregation, but still no confirmation. She asked me again what she should do, and I felt inspired to tell her to keep up with the process. I told her God would help her know what was right. Well, she submitted her application. One day at her apartment at school, a packet arrived which contained her assignment. And my wife and I were in town visiting, so we met up at a small conference room at our hotel, and with her brothers and sisters on FaceTime, she opened the envelope. When she opened the letter, she read it out loud to everyone. The letter read, Sister Christensen, you are hereby called to serve in the London, England mission. Of course, we all let out a cheer, and her brothers and sisters cheered and screamed. I mean, how awesome a place to go live for 18 months, London, England. But while everyone was cheering and talking, our daughter was rather silent. And I wondered, what was the matter? Was she disappointed? Was she upset? As the chatter from her brothers and sisters continued, she turned to me and mouthed the words, now I know. You see, something had happened to her at that moment, happened inside, that had told her it was the right path for her to follow. Well, she left home with the knowledge that this was God's will for her, and she went to England. And despite trials and challenges, she served and worked hard for other people for a time in her life. When she returned home, she wasn't the same young woman we knew before she left. It was as if her body was the same, but the spirit inside her was different. She had a maturity about her that was beyond what I could imagine. It was remarkable. And her understanding, her kindness, her perspective, strength were new and impressive. By choosing to stand in service in London, England, she changed her life's 
destiny. When I saw her again, a scripture came to my mind. A new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I saw firsthand that it matters where you stand in life, where you live, what you do, because you gain a new perspective of who you can become. And that perspective makes who you are today better. Now, a side note. I believe we limit ourselves when we only operate at an intellectual level and refuse to pay attention to inspiration or spiritual inclinations that come our way or that reside in our heart. Your mind may guide you, but your heart is what gives you the strength to do it. So, what's your future worth? It's worth the hard things you have to do today. It's worth the sacrifices you are making. It's worth the work to overcome your habits. And it's worth the climb. Next, here's something that I've noticed. Many people can tell when you're serious about what you want in life. They can tell whether you're serious about your business, about being a software developer, about being a quality parent, or whatever it is that you're trying to be. And as people watch you make sacrifices, they want to invest in your dream as well. And I believe God and life and others will send people out of nowhere sometimes to support you, encourage you, and invest in you. One author asks, Are you trying to harvest an opulent life from a dollar store investment in yourself? Your destiny cannot be tricked by cheap imitations. There is no faking your way to the future you, to who you can become. And the truth is that your destiny demands you get in step with your destiny. Perhaps you need a reset today. You know, there are spiritual resets and physical resets and emotional and mental resets. But it is a fact that you need a reset now and then. So I ask you, is now a time for a reset? And if it is, then perhaps it's time to reset some of your associations in life. Are you inspired by those you interact with? If not, extend yourself a bit to new people. Are you stale and tired in your physical life? Is your exercise the same old routine? It may be time to mix it up. And the same goes for spiritual and emotional things. It may be time for a reset. Read a book, go to church, say a prayer, do something out of the ordinary. And remember, where you stand determines your perspective, and your perspective directs your actions. So, reset where you are standing today, and it will make all the difference. As we end today, let's take a lesson from Rob and Rod and Clinton and return to the climb. It's worth the effort. It's worth getting the perspective. Your future is worth the effort you make today. As you clearly imagine and envision the future you, the present you will benefit and change in the process. Like Michael, live out of the future and the present will improve. And stand and serve and work in places where your perspective can change. Most of all, Thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.